All right, starting in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people, and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this may become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, into the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they do not escape, he who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven whose voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I, I, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the, the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we since we receive since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken let us have grace which by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for God is consumingly is God, God is a consuming fire Would you pray with me this morning as we begin our study in the Word? Lord, you are more precious than silver, more costly than gold. Reminded of that, that chorus. Father, I pray that there would, even among us here, there would be nothing that we would desire that would compare with you. We thank you that you are all in all, that you're everything that we need. See, Lord, that our reliance is always upon you. For you are a holy God, 
mighty in power indeed. You are dependable. You're trustworthy in all things. You placed the stars in the sky, created the land and the sea. You fashioned both man and woman. You created them both in your image. By the sound of your voice, you brought this world into being. You spoke it into existence. Lord, you're still speaking today through your word, through your good spirit. Pray that you would teach us today, incline our hearts to hear what you have to say. Lord, you have promised that your word will accomplish the purpose for which it goes forward. I pray it would do so once again yet today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Corinthians 15 is well known because of its uh, attention and theme to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in Corinthians 15, there are a couple verses, and I'd just like to read a few passages here up front, kind of set the table for where we're going this morning. In Corinthians 15, 33 and 34, Paul says, Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And he says, I speak this to your shame. And this is in the context of some who in Corinth were, were not holding to a right understanding of the resurrection from the dead. People who didn't believe there was a resurrection and thereby denied that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He says, shame on you for not adhering to the truth of the gospel. You knew this, but some have swayed your thoughts on this matter. You turn to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And chapter 3, verse 1, Paul's writing to the churches in Galatia, and he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from, listen, from him who called you in the grace of Christ. To a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Is that not true still today? In chapter 3 he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 and 28 and 29. This is one of John's purpose statements here in 226. It's good for us to keep in mind. It ties into the other two previously that I've read. He said, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Abide in him, he goes on to say. That's Christ. That when he appears... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. 
And then there's the proverb in chapter 13, verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. But the companion of fools will be destroyed. Now, a lot of times we read that proverb and maybe we don't necessarily associate the destroying part with, like, really what it means. Destruction. I put that proverb forward because I do believe in many ways the company that we keep in these days the Lord gives to us is going to influence us one direction or another. Each one of those passages of Scripture, in fact, it's interesting when we read how many of the letters in the New Testament in particular are written to address and warn about what had been happening and, 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 and a change of course needed. And a reminder that there are some people who are trying to get you to go a different direction. The book of Hebrews has been addressing a real concern for the first century church. Are you going to run the race of faith trusting Jesus as Messiah? Are you going to abandon the practices and rituals of the First Testament and cling to the mediator of the New Testament in Jesus Christ? Are you going to endure and persevere in Christ all the way to the end? I hope if you remember nothing else about the book of Hebrews, you remember that very thing. We've talked and we've talked and we've talked about enduring and persevering all the way to the end. And the reason we've talked a lot about it is because that's a large part of what he's sharing here. He's encouraging the, 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 the listener to keep going. Knowing that they are in the midst of much persecution. Persecution from the outside, persecution from the inside, from the Judaism crowd. To come back, come back to the way things were. And then there's the persecution going on outside. The letter's written, more than likely, right on the, the beginning wave of the persecution from uh, the Romans against the Christians. So to go away, listen, think about this, to move away from that First Testament, the, the practices and the sacrificial system that they knew, to move away from that, to accept Christ as Savior, as Messiah, as recorded here. What that was going to mean, if I'm going to now go this direction, it was going to mean that I was going to be persecuted because I was a Christ follower. That's the real tension that's going on here. As the writer is writing, moved by the Holy Spirit. The issue then, just as it in large part is still today, it's not an absence of truth being taught. You know, some of those passages I read earlier. Who, who's, who's bewitched you? Paul writes to the Galatians. Who's turned you away? Because Christ crucified was clearly portrayed to you. What we're looking at here is not an absence of truth being taught. The church had been instructed. The book of Hebrews, the church had been instructed. And the book of Hebrews is reinforcing the gospel message of the sufficiency of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. So armed with the truth, the church is now confronted with running the race set before her. She's being called to run, right? That's what we've been talking about the last several weeks. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us 
run. And in this race, the church is to keep her eyes always on the one who has gone before her. Right? The forerunner, the leader, the pioneer, Jesus. The church is to consider. That's chapter 12, verse 3. Consider, not just look unto Jesus, but to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Lest you also become weary and discouraged in your souls. That word consider we talked about has idea of thinking much of, meditating upon. So we're called to look unto Jesus as we run the race. We're called to think much about Jesus as we run the race. And as we keep reading in Hebrews 12, the church is called to endure discipline as a child of the loving Heavenly Father. And the discipline that he gives to his children is always loving, always relational, Always beneficial and profitable for our soul, isn't it? His discipline is given, in fact, the Bible says, that we might be partakers, that we might be sharers together in His holiness. In the church then, what we saw last week, was called to strengthen the hands that hang and the feeble knees and to make straight paths or straight tracks for her feet. To pursue with intensity peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's interesting to me as I read the text this week and reminded of last week's. Part of our pursuit is holiness, isn't it? Without which no one will see the Lord. That's to me really interesting as we come to the text today in 18 to 29. Seeing the Lord. No one's going to see the Lord without holiness. In this race, we are running, watching diligently at all times. Lest, and here are the warnings, lest anyone fall short or fail to obtain the grace of God. Lest there be any root of bitterness, this is verse 15 of chapter 12, springing up, causing trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest, verse 16, there be any fornicator or profane person like Who was the example? Esau. And coming out of that discussion, coming out of that warning, coming out of watching carefully, see to it that these things don't happen. We get to verse 18. As as we run this race that's set before us, We've been called to look unto Jesus, to consider Him, to think much on Him. Looking and thinking are much needed in the race of faith, amen? Looking unto Jesus, thinking much of Jesus. I'm hoping that registers and makes sense with us all. As we run the race, it's important that we have a focus. Looking ahead at Christ, fixed on Christ. Thinking much about Him. Setting our minds on things above, not things here on the earth. But as this chapter comes to a close, and as the book of Hebrews begins to wind down, the writer wants his listener to grasp one other truth about running this race. It's not simply looking unto Jesus and considering much about Jesus, but he adds, I think, a very significant, important third thing for us in this chapter. And that's listen 
to Jesus. Listen. You know, can I just make a statement here? There are, I believe, many of us, if not all of us in this room, we, in fact, how many of you have failed, if you're willing to acknowledge it, you failed to listen to what someone has said to you before? Yeah, I think it's about everybody in here. Now, there are times when you don't listen because you just don't want to listen. There are times you don't listen because you think you've got the right answer. You think you've got it all figured out. You already know this. You don't need to listen. Sometimes we err on that particular side when we come to a familiar passage in the Bible, don't we? We come and we, we turn to a David and Goliath or a Jonah. Oh, I, I know that one. And we really don't listen to what God has to say. Because we think we already know it. Friends, that's pretty prideful. Pushing the line of arrogancy. To think that we don't need to listen to the words of Scripture. Can I remind you this morning that the words of Scripture are the very revelation of God Himself. And if God is speaking, what is it that we need to be doing? Listening. I believe as we close Hebrews 12, that's the message. Listen to Jesus. In fact, if you would turn backwards in Hebrews to chapter 1 for just a moment. Go ahead, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. That's a good exercise. That'll, that'll get your hands moving, get your brain moving, uh, get you engaged in God's Word. Because remember, we want to listen to what His Word has to say. It helps us as if our eyes are actually looking at it. It engages lots, lots of senses. So chapter 1. Hebrews, God who at various times and in various ways spoke, get that, he spoke in time past to the fathers by, how did he speak? By what means? By the prophets. Okay, that's how he used to speak. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Who's the son? Jesus. Whom he's appointed Listen to this about Jesus. God has appointed Jesus heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, no small thing, huh? Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had purged himself, purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better. And then that's the theme of what we're talking about. Anchored in someone better. That's what we've been talking about this whole time in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the someone better that our lives ought to be anchored in. But we see right out of the gate in the book of Hebrews, the author is talking about God speaking. How he used to speak 
And now in these last days of which we are a part, he's still speaking today and he's speaking through his son. Keep that in mind. The responsibility we have before us is to listen to what God is saying through his son. Listen, listen, if you don't get the, anything else, listen to this right here. Listen to what he has to say. If you get nothing else, I'm hoping you leave with that. Listen to what the Lord has to say to you through his word. Whether it's a letter to Corinth, to the churches in Galatia, or a general epistle, as I read an excerpt from 1 John, much of what we have in the New Testament is addressing a real problem for those in the church. And here's the problem. It's a question. Who am I going to listen to? And this, by the way, is not a new problem. You go all the way back. If you flip in your Bibles all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3, you see this was a problem even from the beginning. The evil one is speaking, and he says something like, surely God didn't say, no, come on, come on, Eve. He didn't say that, really. It became a situation where there was going to be an acknowledgement of one party being correct, the other party not being correct. How do we know which one's correct? Well, we see that in that Genesis 2 and 3, there was a decision made, and the decision that was made leads us to believe that she was in agreement with what the serpent said. But your husband went along right with her. This is not a new problem. In fact, I would say today, it's, it's really bubbling, coming to the forefront. Who are we listening to? Young people, who are you listening to? And yeah, I guess in a part, I'm also talking about from a music standpoint, who you're listening to, because I know it's a big deal for a lot of you young people. Who are you listening to? Outside of music, who are you listening to? Dads and moms, who are you listening to? Because you see, the people that we're listening to are influencing us in some way, shape, or form to walk a certain way. As we think about running the race we've been called to, Running the race is going to be impacted greatly by those we listen to. Do we understand this? Influence. Who are you listening to? Not only will it distract you, derail you in the race, but you might very well find yourself in the company of folks that you really don't want to be spending time with. The text today is not advocating a self-help or a quick-fix approach to running the race. There's no shortcuts advocated in this text. The race is long. It's deemed a marathon-like affair. If you're not careful, if you're not watchful, if you're not alert, you can find yourself running toward another destination. The writer brings home the sober realities... Of running this race. There's judgment awaiting. 
and how you listen to him who speaks, this is going to direct your steps to the proper finish line. I mean, think about running a race. And you're running this race, and you know where the finish line is supposed to be, but you're running. Can you imagine seeing and watching a race where a person is actually running and they end up in a place that's not the finish line, not, not the intended finish line? They get, and, they, and they cross it, and they stop running, and they feel like they've, and only to come to find out that they, they somewhere along the line got derailed. They, they somewhere, somewhere there was a sign, or so, somebody was telling them to go this way, and, and they, they decided to go that way, and after a while they find themselves crossing a line that is not the real intended finish line. Friends, I think this passage is is intended to be a wake-up call to every single one of us. To make sure we know where we've come to. And to make sure we know where we've not come if we're in Christ. The resounding message in the chapter is loaded with careful attention. Given to making sure the runner understands What's at stake? There are two mountains in mind in this passage, okay? 18 to 24 in particular. Two mountains. And the writer paints the picture of the setting. How many of you literature people in here like to read? Any readers in here? A few of you? Good. When you're studying literature, one of the things that you come to uh, see and, and hopefully appreciate as a student of literature, is the setting of a story. It gives you this this picture of of what's happening. The the setting of a story describes the surroundings, the people, the community where the story is being told. It gives you a flavor and a feel of what life is like where the story is being told. The writer here is shedding light on the setting of the first covenant which would have been an all-too-familiar setting for his Jewish audience. The first setting that's being described is from Mount Sinai. And the setting that is contrasted is that of Mount Zion. Notice the difference in the two descriptions. Both are given equal weight of consideration. There's going to be seven qualifiers of the one, seven qualifiers of the other. Both speak very loudly. Both are needful for us as we run the race to have an understanding of these two mountains symbolically of what they are about. And as you read the text, I pray the differences jump off the page and lead you in the way everlasting. Once the setting has been laid out, the writer then is going to issue a strong warning in verse 25 and following and then conclude in 28 and 29 with an exhortation that's predicated upon who this God of the Scriptures is. I love how this ends. Our God is a consuming fire. That's who He is. Now, you may not like the fact that he's described here as a consuming fire. You might, you, maybe, maybe you'd rather it say our God is a loving God. Well, the Bible also talks about him being love. 
But the Bible here also says that he is a consuming fire. And for good reason, as we'll see. Well, look at these. Let's look at the two mountains. Verse 18. So if you've got your Bible open, look at verse 18. We're going to look at it together. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. Now, I want you to look at 18 and I want you to look at verse 22. Give you some framework here of the passage that we're dealing with. You have not come, look at verse 22, but, contrast, but you have come. All right, you see this, verse 18. You have not come, verse 22, but you have come. So what he's going to be doing here is he's going to be explaining to them. By the way, the word come, uh, it's the same word that we would see in, in Hebrews chapter 4. If you flip backward to verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Uh, this word come has in mind um, approach. Sort of like one who was going to offer a sacrifice, approaching, coming. And the writer here is wanting his listener, and by extension, all of us, to understand something. If you're going to follow the Messiah, as recorded here in Hebrews, the Christ, he wants them to understand, you've not come to, and and to give them a picture of this, he's going to give them something very familiar, Sinai, something they would have been very familiar with, Perhaps we're not as familiar with it, but I think the description will help us give it a little bit more of an understanding. For you have not come to the mountain. Listen to the description of this mountain. The mountain that may be touched. The mountain that may be touched. Sinai, real place, real mountain. You've not come to a mountain that may be touched. That's the first descriptor. And that burned with fire. It's interesting that this mountain burns with fire. It's also interesting that the last verse of this passage speaks of God being a consuming fire. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched. You've not come to a mountain burned with fire and to blackness. And darkness, or the word darkness there, another translation would be gloom. You've not come to a mountain of blackness and gloom and tempest. Tempest has in mind, uh, really for me as I was reading the descriptions of these words, tempest has in mind uh, really what you would see with like a volcano, uh, an eruption, a, a blast. I think of a volcano and I think of lava being spewed. And really, that's the idea here, a tempest. You get the picture. Blackness, gloom, tempest, and the sound of a trumpet. The sound of a trumpet. You've not come to the mountain and the sound of a trumpet. You know, I've always wondered as I read this, who was playing the trumpet? You know, when we, read it, when we read passages elsewhere, Stephen and his testimony in Acts 5, and there's a, a, other references to uh, angels being mediators of the law. It's interesting that, very real possibility, that the ones playing the trumpet were the angels accompanying the giving of the law. Think about it. 
And we, we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see that this trumpet was not just like, boop, and it was done. It was loud, and it was ever-increasing. So what we're, what we're listening to and what we're looking at here in this first mountain, at Sinai, has both an audio and a visual effect to it, doesn't it? We live in an audio-visual generation. So hopefully you can connect to what we're talking about here as we read about Sinai. The sound of a trumpet and, this is probably the, one of the most important descriptors, the voice of words. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The voice of words. So that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. And listen to the parentheses in 20 and 21. For they could not endure, they could not endure what was commanded. Well, what was, it, what was about it that was being commanded back in the day? Remember, this is, this is right before the delivering of the Ten Commandments. Sinai, that's the setting. Listen to these words. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. <gasps> they were frightened. At the command. Death. Anybody touches it, they're going to die. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Do you get the picture of this mountain? Mount Sinai. In fact, keep your finger there and turn back with me to, to Exodus By the way, that's right after Genesis, right? Exodus, right? You turn, and chapter 19 is the chapter right before the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And it says, it says starting um, in verse 13... Uh, let's, let's go back to 12. You shall set bounds, Lord speaking to Moses here and telling him what needs to happen. Set bounds for the people. Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Do you think, church, we ought to listen to what God has to say? It'd be a good idea. You think for Moses and the people, it'd be a good idea to listen in this moment to what God has to say. Don't, listen, don't, don't touch the mountain, for surely you should be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him but he shall be, surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. And then he's just going to be taken out. There's not a person there that's going to, like, shoot him. He, there's an arrow that's going to come out of somewhere, a stone. He's going to die if he touches this mountain. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, listen to that, there it is. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. Moses goes down the mountain. He tells the people about it, sanctifies them, sets them apart. Look at verse 16, Exodus 19. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings. How many of you like it when it thunders and lightnings? Anybody? Some of you do. Younger ones, frightened. It's scary. I want you to think about that to the nth degree. That's what we're seeing here. This is the picture. I'm, I'm giving you the setting of Mount Sinai. Frightening. It's frightening not only in what you see, but it's frightening in what you hear. The instruction. Everything about it is frightening. And I can't touch this mountain. I, can't, I, I can come to the base of it. I can come to, to around it. But I can't touch it. If I touch it, I die. 
thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. So that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brings the people out to meet with God. They stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai, verse 18, was completely in smoke. Why? Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Remember, our God is a consuming fire. And here's the picture in Sinai. God has descended upon the mountain. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. I find it interesting that they had to put the word greatly. Hey, if there's a quake going on, it's pretty great. But this mountain quaked greatly. And they're standing there and they're seeing the thunderings. They're seeing the lightnings. They're hearing the loud trumpet. And they're seeing this mountain shake. And their feet are probably shaking a bit. Because the mountain's shaking. Thick cloud. Darkness. If we could write a story and describe the setting, it would be absolutely frightening. If you look on the back side of Exodus 20, starting in verse 18, all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. That's probably a good idea. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we'll hear. But let not, let not God speak with us, lest we die. Did you see that? They didn't want any more God speaking. Because they, they were assuming and connecting God speaking now at this point. We're going to die. So Moses, you, you, you go, and then you just tell us what God said. Moses said, don't fear. God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. This is interesting because if you look at, turning your Bible now to Deuteronomy, which is the second law, it's the second rendering. In fact, we see another account of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, right? But if you turn to Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 9, Take heed to yourself, diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially, what are we supposed to teach them, he says? Especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God, Oreb, at Sinai, in the mountain, when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words. Did you hear that? Isn't that, isn't that good of God? He lets us hear his words that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Moses says, you came and stood near the foot of the mountain. The mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven with darkness, cloud and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words. Listen, you heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. Now hold that. And when you go back to Hebrews and you see this description here of Mount Sinai, it says the sound of a trumpet, verse 19, and the voice of words. Here Deuteronomy tells us the Lord spoke out of the midst of the fire and you heard the sound of the words. 
You saw no form. And later on he goes on and he says, take heed, beware. This becomes very significant. You heard words. You didn't see a form. Therefore, don't start getting into this thing of making and shaping and molding images. Oh, they, they failed that one a few times. And I, and I think that we too do our own fair share of molding and crafting our own images today. But he just spoke words. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 33, I love this. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There's none other besides him. Out of heaven, listen, he let you hear his voice. He let you hear his voice. And aren't we glad, church, that he's allowed us to hear his voice? Is there anybody here that just wants to say, boy, I, I wish we hadn't heard his voice? No. This is what I'm saying. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you. His desire is to teach you. He's given to us his revealed word to instruct us that we might walk in his way. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. I read those passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy to fill in the setting. It's important. It's significant. It tells a story. You've not come to the mountain that may be touched, burned with fire, to blackness and darkness and tempest, sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. You haven't come to that mountain. But, verse 22, you have come. Listen, as we're running a race, isn't it important to know uh, progress? You know, someone who's run, anybody here run a marathon? Anybody? Maybe a half marathon. Some of you run a half, maybe. Okay, we, haven't, we don't have a running crowd in here, do we? That's okay. But from what I've been told, because I haven't run a half marathon either, Progress reports along the way. You got like mile markers, right? People holding up these signs or there's different signs that are scattered throughout the course saying uh, only 20 miles to go, (laughs) right? You chart where you're at. You know what progress that you've made. I think in some way the writer here is saying, hey, I want you to know where you've come. I want you to know what you are approaching as you run this race. And it's not this old way of doing things. But, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. So we have Mount Sinai and we have Mount Zion. Mount Zion referred to the city of the living God. It's referred to as the heavenly Jerusalem. It's interesting to see the setting in the descriptors of both of these mountains, and they are worlds apart, and yet, worlds apart, and yet, there's a connection. And we must see the connection, too. Not only see the differences, but I want you to see how they are connected. We've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, But secondly, it says, to an innumerable company of angels. 
an innumerable company or myriad of angels. Thousands upon thousands attend the throne room. We see that even early on in Hebrews, he's talked about how this Christ, this this Messiah, is better than the angels. So much better than the angels. And yet these angels aren't inferior. They're ministering spirits sent forth for those who will inherit salvation. There's a place for them. The writer is saying that in Christ you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. This God's not dead. The heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem gives us a picture of what we read of just prior to Revelation 21.1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Look at verse 23. To the general assembly. That's the, uh, a festal gathering is the idea there. A festal gathering. Uh, a general assembly and church. The ecclesia, the called out ones. This is where you've come. If you're in Christ, you've come to the general assembly. This festal gathering of the saints and the angels. The church of the firstborn. I love this description. You know, the firstborn was the one who who was given uh, double inheritance, essentially, right? He had several sons. The oldest son was given double portion. Here's the really neat thing. When you've come to Mount Zion, when you've come to this place. Every single one who comes to Zion, to the city of God, essentially gets the benefit of being firstborn. We are fellow heirs with Christ. This is a good deal. A really good deal. You don't want to pass this deal up. The church of the firstborn. Privileges, rights, given to those who are in Christ Jesus. What else? What else have you come to? Oh, by the way, uh, the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. They're enrolled in heaven. Anybody ever, ever shown up to something and, and you get there and, and uh, they say, what's your name? Tell them your name and they look in the book and Sorry, I don't have it here. Sort of offends you maybe initially because you thought your name should be there. Listen, as much as that might upset you that your name's not in that particular book, friends, I want to encourage you this morning, your name had better be in the book of life. The Lamb's book of life. You need to be enrolled and registered in the book of life so that you can be with Jesus And the innumerable company of angels and the church of Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful picture. It keeps going. You've come where? You've come, verse 23, to God. You've come to God? Are you serious? To God? 
What we read about a lot in the Old Testament is that we can't see God. We can't see him. He passed by. Moses got a decent look at him. To God, the judge of all. In case there's somebody thinking that they're going to get a free pass, I think this is important for us to understand. He's the judge of everyone. In fact, it's already been stated in Hebrews chapter 4. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God is the judge and he's judging through his son and the standard is that of righteousness. So that's where you've come. If you were in Christ, you've come to God, the judge of all, and then says to the spirits of just men made perfect. The spirits of just men made perfect. Uh, Many of the Old Testament saints who who were reminded as, as the writer's writing in chapter 10, in chapter 10, verse 14, by one offering, that was done through Christ, by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. By that one offering, he had not only perfected the Old Testament saints who walk by faith, but by that one offering, Christ has also perfected those of us here today. So we approach and we come to this Mount Zion to God and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Here's the best one, though. Here's the best one. Mark it, asterisk, underline it, highlight it, whatever you do in your scripture. Verse 24, here's the best one. When you come to Zion, you come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. This is the best. There's not one that beats this one. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And the last really ties into this Jesus. The last one is to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. I don't want you to miss this last one as it's connected to the one previous. Notice it says, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks. What's it do? Speaks. I want you to see something here. Mount Sinai has, at the end of its description, the voice of words. At the end of the description of Mount Zion, we have blood that speaks. Blood that speaks. How is it that blood speaks? And it not only speaks, but it speaks better things than that of Abel. How is it so? I don't believe we're contrasting comparing Jesus' blood and Abel's blood. I don't think for a moment that's exactly what's happening. I think what's happening is Abel's put forward in his blood better things than Abel's blood as a representative of the old covenant. Jesus, a representative of the new covenant. Abel's blood was shed at a time when vengeance was taken. Remember that? Cain and Abel? Remember that story? Christ shed his blood. Mercy. Forgiveness. 
the blood of Jesus atones and speaks better things, much better things. Salvation-oriented things. It's in light of those two mountains. Oh, by the way, Mount Sinai, you couldn't touch lest you die. Mount Zion, come on in. Grace. You see, because entrance had been provided for you to get in through that blood that speaks. What we have is, a, is the writer is painting a picture for us of a mountain that was not able to be approached. Versus over here, a mountain, a city, through Jesus, the new mediator of this covenant. Approachable. Because of what Christ did at the cross, we have access. Doesn't that speak to approachability? He's given to us, torn the curtain. Remember Christ's death? Curtain torn in two. We now have full access. He's given to us approachability. He desires relationship. He wants to know you. He wants to know me. It's no longer hands off, but we need to understand something. That Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, one of them speaks to the law, one of them speaks to grace. In fact, if you read Paul, we won't take time to do it. If you read Paul in his letter to the church at Galatia, you see in chapter 4, he speaks of these two mountains. And he says that they're simply symbolic. They're symbolic. One of them being free, one of them being in bondage. Sinai is a representative and symbolic of, of being in bondage. Remember the bondwoman, Hagar? And remember that? Remember that past? That's what he's bringing forward there. Oh, we are sons of the free woman. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free, and do not return again to the yoke of bondage. That's the message Paul gives in Galatians 5.1. Similar message right here. Well, I want to end. I was planning on getting through 29. I just simply want to end right here in 25. And we're going to pick this up next week. I think it's a fitting ending as we talk about these two mountains, as we talk about what the writer is desiring for us to see. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Remember here in this chapter, he's called us to look into Jesus. He's called us to consider, to think much of Jesus. And he's also called us to listen to Jesus. And he's going he's gonna to really hammer this starting in 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Because what he's going to say is there are consequences eternally. No, it's not just, you know, you don't get a ride on the, on the, uh, on the boat. You don't, get, you don't get a play with your toy if you, do, if you don't. No, these are eternal stakes at hand. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Church, listen to Jesus. Listen to his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. I thank you, Lord, for... Uh, not only the, the sober realities that are mentioned here as it pertains to the, the descriptions of Sinai. 
but also the wonderful, joyous, celebratory description of what awaits. In fact, what is already ours in Christ. It's good news. And most of all, Lord, it's good news because coming to this heavenly city, we get to see Jesus as he is. I pray that as a people we would long for that day. That we would relish in in, in the grace and the mercy that's been shown our way. That you have allowed us to hear your words. That you've allowed us to know you. The God of all creation. And that you desire to have relationship with us. It's an amazing thing that you demonstrate your love toward a group of people who, while we were still sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. It's an amazing thing. Father, I pray that we never tire of hearing that old, old story. That we would be reminded each day that we have been saved by grace through faith and that not of our own lest any one of us would boast. Father, it's by your grace we're saved. Thank you for the gracious gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. The wages of our sin is death, but this wonderful gift of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving us. And see, Lord, that we run this race always looking unto you, always thinking much of you. And yes, even as we read today, always listening for your voice that we might know that we're running in the right way, that we're running the right path. May we hear your voice and may the voices all around us in this world that we live in May they all drown away and drown out as we take in your words of truth and live them out each day of our lives. Father, thank you for giving to us your words, your wonderful words of life. Thank you, Father. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.